Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christians, it can happen that we go through a period of time where our faith feels stagnant, or maybe a time, even a long time, where we we feel somewhat uh, distant from God. And going through those seasons might make us crave for something more. We might wish for some kind of mountaintop experience with the Lord. You know, just look at what Moses experienced in Exodus 34 in Mount Sinai, and there's no question about it. It was awesome. It would have been awesome to be there. Uh, look what Moses uh, got to experience, the Lord passing by him with his glory, proclaiming his name. But it's easy to reason that if we went through that same experience as Moses, it would put more life in our faith, in our Christian faith, or that it would make us feel a lot closer to God. Now, let me first say that it's not wrong to want to feel closer to God or to feel lively in your faith. Those are actually good things to desire. However, it must be stressed that there are dangers in seeking this sort of experience. For one, this sort of thinking downplays the regular means of grace God has given to build up His children, the preaching of His Word and the use of the sacraments. But there's a second thing that our text this morning teaches us in this regard. And that second thing is this. The experience, the regular experience we have as New Testament Christians is actually greater than what Moses experienced. That's what our text is teaching us this morning. And that is true whether we realize it or not, and whether we feel it or not. These things are a reality in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit for all believers. But our text this morning teaches us to see these things with the eyes of faith. And that brings us to the sermon theme. The ministry of the new covenant is a ministry of the Spirit full of life and glory. And we're going to see that this ministry is, first of all, confirmed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Second of all, this ministry is a giver or a conduit of life and righteousness. And finally, this ministry is full of unfading glory. Now, in our text, the Apostle Paul continues to defend his ministry to the Corinthian church. Some were questioning Paul's credentials to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Some doubted his love for them. Some of them were following other teachers in opposition to Paul. Apparently, these other teachers looked and sounded quite impressive. They also came to the church at Corinth with these glowing letters of recommendation from, from other people. Uh, other people had written these letters and given reviews of their credentials as fantastic teachers and speakers. And so their, their resumes, so to speak, were top-notch. Now, in 2 Corinthians, and also our text, chapter 3, 
Paul felt compelled to respond. Paul wasn't jealous of these other teachers as if he needed praise from humans. Rather, these teachers were leading the Corinthians away from the glorious truths of the gospel. Paul could simply not let that happen. So he says at the beginning of our text, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again to you? Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What is Paul saying by these words? Well, he's saying, Do you not know, O Corinthians, there's not one ounce of insecurity in our hearts that we have been called by God for this task to preach this gospel? We don't need your approval or the approval of others. However, why is it even a question for you whether or not we are true apostles of Christ? After all, think about this. The church at Corinth did not even exist when Paul came there to that city. And that church was established through the work of Paul. Isn't that enough to show his credentials? No, it's like... Imagine a a newbie uh, worker on the job. Shortly after getting hired, he walks up to his boss and he says to him, Hey, uh, boss, what are your credentials to be my boss? I'm not sure you're qualified for this job. Do you have any references I can check? Well, let me assure you, that's not a good idea. The The boss would probably laugh and say, My credentials? Listen, Sonny, I started this business. The very fact you have a job here you can come to every day shows my credentials. Get to work. This is essentially what the Corinthians were doing to the Apostle Paul. Furthermore, Paul says he had the Corinthian church continually on his heart. And that was plain to everyone. He wore his love for them on his sleeve and spoke of them wherever he went. He, was, he showed in every way he was sincere Wasn't that better than any letter of recommendation from them? But the most important thing authenticating Paul's apostleship is the work of the Holy Spirit through him. The Spirit was clearly at work through Paul's own ministry among the Corinthians. And that was like a letter of commendation from the Lord Jesus himself. Paul says, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. As Paul ministered among them, Christ was busy by the power of the Holy Spirit, writing faith and hope and love upon their hearts, granting them understanding, granting them faith. And this is significant for two reasons. First, this was far better, a far better letter of recommendation than any of those false teachers had. 
Paul had the backing of Christ himself. The Spirit showed this. He says in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. So his confidence in his ministry did not depend on whether or not the Corinthians accepted him. He was not trying to build some kind of resume through the Corinthians. Also, his confidence was not in his own ability or in his own strength. He says, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the, co- of the Spirit. And this is a second and more significant thing. See, the work of the Spirit through Paul showed that Paul was a minister of a new covenant, the new covenant. And actually, the description of the Spirit and His work here in our text fulfills what the Old Testament prophesied would happen in the new covenant when it came. Listen to Jeremiah 31 about the coming new covenant. Verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This was the very thing happening to the Corinthian Christians through the ministry of Paul. Christ was writing on their hearts. Consider also Ezekiel 36, where the Lord says, about the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, this was the very thing happening among the Corinthians through Paul's work. And that showed He was a minister of the new covenant. The thing is, these are the very same realities continued even today, also among us, through the faithful preaching of God's Word. In the new covenant times, the Spirit is at work through God's Word to give us hearts of flesh, Not hardened hearts, hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh that receive his word. And as the Spirit does that, Christ writes the good news of salvation. He writes his word and his law upon our hearts so that we follow him and have faith. These things are a reality today as well. This reality not only allowed Paul to show the Corinthians that his opponents were wrong, but it also allowed him to to describe in detail the power of his new covenant ministry by the Spirit. And the reason why both the Corinthians back then and why we today should listen to it and follow it. And that's what the rest of our text explains to us. That brings us to the second point. So as we, we begin the second point, let me just quickly summarize. Paul is saying here, The work of the Spirit in your heart shows both the reality of the new covenant among you and the sufficiency Paul has to be a minister of the new covenant, the sufficiency that comes from God. One reason why he needs to say this is that the the false teachers in Corinth, 
the ones with these impressive resumes, appear to be enticing the Corinthian Christians back into old covenant ways. And because of this, Paul is now going to contrast the old covenant God made with Israel at Sinai and the new covenant made in Christ in several important ways. And as he do this, we need to be clear about one thing. Paul's not going to talk down the old covenant as if it were something bad in itself. Paul would never say it. The old covenant was part of the covenant of grace. However, when the old covenant is compared to the new covenant in Christ, as it is here, the new covenant is shown to be far superior to the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai. And making this comparison will serve some important functions. First, it will show that Paul's ministry among the Corinthians is far superior to the false teachers who are opposing Paul, even if Paul's ministry appears much less impressive to theirs. Not only that, but Paul's ministry will be shown to be far superior even to that of Moses, which would be shocking for any a Jew or Israelite to hear. And to top it all off, through his teaching here, Paul will show that the experience of the Corinthians themselves through this ministry of the new covenant is even greater than the experience Moses had in the old covenant. And the wonderful thing is, the same truth applies to us who are sitting here this morning in Winnipeg. So, Paul contrasts the old and new covenants. The first contrast between the old and new covenants involves the place of writing. Again, the old covenant was written with the finger of God, but it was written on tablets of stone. The new covenant is written with the Spirit of God, written on human hearts. The second main difference is this. The old covenant, written on tablets of stone, by and large brought death. Paul says that old covenant ministry was a ministry that killed. In verse 9, he even calls the Old Covenant the ministry of condemnation. That is, of God's judgment and the curse upon sin. Now again, we should not mistake what Paul is saying here. It's not as though the Old Covenant made with Israel was devoid uh, of the gospel of grace or of the promises of salvation. No, The good news of Christ was in that covenant as well. Just think of the sacrifices for sins. However, Paul is doing a side-by-side comparison of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, the law was placed in the foreground. And the law by itself holds out life to those who keep it and warns of death to those who break that law. The problem is, because of our sinful natures, the law given at Sinai resulted mainly in death. 
Just think of what happened right after the giving of the law in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 20. No sooner, it seems, had the Lord commanded Israel, you shall have no other gods before me. But Israel made and worshipped the golden calf. See, the giving of the law only increased sin, and so it brought death and judgment. That wasn't a problem with the law of God. No, God's law is good, but it revealed the sinful human heart. And with the golden calf, that sin, the Lord was so angry with Israel, he was ready to destroy them. Thankfully, Moses uh, intervened. Contrast that now with the new covenant and the ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit gives life, says Paul. And likewise, the new covenant is not a ministry of condemnation, but of righteousness. And that's because what God offered in the law, life to the one who perfectly obeyed the law, he freely gives now through faith in Jesus Christ. God gives righteousness as a gift to anyone who believes, a righteous status. And the giving of the Holy Spirit to the one who believes is also a sign of a believer's justification. That we are counted as righteous and obedient before God based on the work of Christ alone. That we are accepted by God through faith in Christ. And that's why the ministry of the Spirit is a ministry of life and righteousness. If you believe in Jesus Christ... Your sins are forgiven. You are counted righteous and have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. By that same Spirit, we also have new life by which we can serve God. Now, before we go on, I just want to point out one more thing. There's an interesting example in Scripture that highlights this contrast. Death in the Old Covenant, life in the New Covenant. Think again of the golden calf soon after the giving of the law. What happened in the aftermath of that event? Well, the Levites were found to have not bowed down to the golden calf, the tribe of Levi. And so Moses instructed them to act as agents of God's justice among idolatrous Israel. And so the Levites went out and put to death 3,000 of their fellow Israelites. Now, later on, the Jews began to associate the giving of the law with the Old Testament feast of Pentecost. They believed that the first Pentecost of the Old Covenant was the time the law was given. Whether this really is true doesn't really matter right now. What is important is to see what did happen on the first Pentecost of the New Covenant. On that Pentecost... The law was not given to Israel, but the Holy Spirit was poured out from heaven. And the apostles, filled with the Spirit, began the new covenant ministry of the Spirit. And what was the effect of that new covenant ministry on that Pentecost Sunday? Acts 2 says that 3,000 Israelites were added to their number. Instead of 3,000 Israelites being killed at the giving of the law, 3,000 people find life and salvation at the giving of the Spirit. 
And isn't that amazing? Scripture is filled with all these wonderful connections. It so clearly shows the contrast between the Old Covenant and New Covenant. It says, Paul says here, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That brings us to our last point. So the next contrast Paul makes between the Old and New Covenant is the glory of these two covenants. It appears Paul's opponents were promoting the Old Covenant because of the glory it displayed. And it is true that there was glory in that covenant. Look at the beginning of Exodus 34. Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory. And God told Moses he would put him in a cleft in the rock while his glory passed by. And as the Lord passed Moses, he proclaimed his name. And then the end of Exodus 34 gives another example. When Moses came down Mount Sinai, his face was shining because he had been talking with the Lord. And this happened whenever Moses entered the tent of meeting. His face shone with glory as he talked to the Lord face to face. And so the old covenant, it indeed had glory, as Paul says here. However, Paul here puts to rest any idea that this made it better than the new covenant. Instead, the glory of the new covenant far surpasses the glory of the old. And it surpasses that glory in three important ways. The first way the new covenant glory surpasses that of the old is by its intensity. Yes, Moses experienced an amazing dose of God's glory. However, the glory of the new covenant is greater as Paul writes here, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that Israelites cannot gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, the old covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. That is to say, when you compare the glory of the old covenant to that of the new, the glory of the old covenant is pretty much nothing. It's like comparing the light of a flashlight to the light of the sun. A flashlight does indeed have light. In fact, when your brother or sister shines that light right in your eyes, something I'm sure most siblings have experienced, it's quite annoying. However, if you are to look directly at the sun, it's far from a mere annoyance. The light of the sun is blinding. If you want to keep your eyesight, you should never look directly at the sun. It's the same thing with the glory of the new covenant compared with the old. It's way more intense. The difference in glory is also one of duration, of time. The glory of the old covenant was only temporary. It came to an end. Verse 7 says, The Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Now, the glory of Moses' face was temporary. And that fading glory was symbolic of the ministry of the law as a whole. It came to an end just like the glory in Moses' face. In contrast to that, the new covenant is permanent. And the glory of the new covenant remains and only increases as verse 11 says. 
If what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory, the new covenant. And these realities, Paul knew they were a reality. They gave Paul boldness in his ministry as a minister of the new covenant. His ministry was a ministry of the Spirit full of lasting glory. There were no deficiencies in the new covenant that made him shrink back. He had nothing to hide in his message or his work, but he boldly proclaimed the good news of Christ, salvation for sinners in him. And so he spoke boldly. He says in verse 12, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. By these words, Paul refers to what we read from the end of Exodus 34. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face was shining. The Israelites were scared and they ran away, but Moses called them back. Moses told them all that the Lord had commanded him. And after that, Moses put this veil over his face. Notice that the veil was not used to keep the Israelites from seeing that Moses' face was shining. No, Moses put on the veil only after he finished speaking with them. He then removed the veil when he went back to speak to God again. And whenever he finished telling Israel what God had said, it was only then that he again placed the veil over his face. And Paul says here, the reason Moses put a veil over his face was so that, the, so that Israel might not look intently at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, there are several possible meanings. Paul could be saying, Moses put the veil on so that Israel might not see that the glory of the old covenant was a fading glory, that his face didn't shine just all the time. And so, would eventually, and so that also that covenant would eventually be replaced by something better. For all, Moses put the veil over his face after speaking with Israel. But while he wore the, while he wore the veil, the shining of his face began to fade until he spoke with the Lord again. Israel was then kept from seeing that the glory faded. And so from their point of view, the glory Moses experienced was permanent even though it wasn't. This does not mean Moses deceived Israel in any way. However, this was a false conclusion Israel made because of their hardness of hearts that the glory that was there would last forever in that covenant. Another way to understand these words is that the veil kept Israel from seeing the goal of the old covenant. And the goal of the law was to lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ for righteousness and salvation. The veil kept them from seeing this goal. Perhaps they believed the glory of Moses was permanent, and this kept them clinging to Moses and the old covenant instead of looking ahead to the new covenant and the better mediator in Christ. Now, in both interpretations... Placing of the veil over Moses' face resulted in judgment on Israel for their unbelief. Paul then shifts the metaphor slightly in verse 14, where he says, Their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. 
Yes, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. That is to say, Israel still cannot see the glory of the Old Covenant is only temporary. Neither can they see that the Old Covenant was meant to point them ahead to Christ for their salvation. They are clinging on to their old ways, to their own hurt. Paul was very bold in his ministry. He preached Christ boldly also to the Jews. And the glory of Christ in the new covenant through his ministry was not hidden. But we might ask, well, why did many of the Jews, and apparently these false teachers, not accept it then? It's because their hearts were hard. Well, it says a veil was over their hearts. They kept clinging to the old covenant when they should have embraced Jesus Christ. Think of this in terms of the flashlight sun metaphor again. Paul is saying unbelieving Israel is like a child playing with a flashlight under a blanket. The child may be outside, but he cannot see the light of the sun because he refuses to come out from underneath that blanket, which veils his eyes to the light of the sun. He thinks it's so much better under there with his little flashlight. The problem is, the batteries on that flashlight will eventually die out, and the light from that flashlight will be extinguished. The child will then only be left in the dark. This is a very mistake of the Jewish people who refuse to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. This is something the disciples themselves experienced for a time. They didn't understand The Old Testament was pointing to Christ and his suffering and death on the cross for their salvation. Their hearts were hard. That same veil lay over their hearts for a time. This sad situation does not need to be permanent, though, says Paul. As Paul says in this text, through Christ, the veil is taken away. And then in verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. This is likely, first of all, an allusion to Moses. Whenever Moses turned again to speak with the Lord in the tent of meeting, he removed the veil from his face. He spoke with God face to face, freely and openly. This was also the experience of the Apostle Paul himself on the Damascus Road. At one time, Paul had refused to accept Christ and even fought against him. That veil was over his heart, too. But Christ came to him and stopped him in his tracks, and Paul then saw the glory of the Lord, and it blinded him. And the experience of beholding the glory of Christ in the gospel continued for Paul. The thing is, though, for us, this is also the experience of the believer. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is removed whether it be Jew or Gentile. In and through Christ, our experience is like that of Moses, but even greater. New Testament Christians have free and full access to God like Moses had in that tent of meeting, but even greater. We, as New Covenant believers, all know the Lord as he proclaimed to Moses on Mount Sinai, and we know him even better because we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, 
We don't simply have closeness to God as Moses did on Mount Sinai, but we have the very Spirit of God living in our hearts, and that's something greater than what Moses had. Our text ends by saying, Now the Lord is a Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now this is not saying that the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one and the same person. Simply equating the closeness of their person and work. It's kind of like identifying Moses with the law as verse 15 does. In any case, believers have the Holy Spirit. We have the freedom to approach God with confidence in Jesus Christ. And we can, through Christ, behold the glory of the Lord. We are like Moses on Mount Sinai, seeing the glory of God proclaimed in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we will be made more like him. You know that wonderful description of the Lord in Exodus 34? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, we will become like that. It doesn't happen all at once, but it does happen by the power of the Spirit. And as we do that, then we will reflect God's glory into the world to His praise. Amen.